Good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I'm a leader here at GFC. Uh, it's my great pleasure and honor to share God's Word with you this morning. You know that you can tell a lot about a person by listening to the kinds of questions that they ask. Specifically, one example that comes to mind is if you listen to people as they interact at the vehicle repair shop. One thing that you could potentially hear if you're standing in line listening behind someone is something like this. Excuse me, can you help me find the CCR load leveler relay on a V6 1996 Oldsmobile FWD? I've installed passive struts, but haven't put the continuous rate spring on yet, so my compressor is running down the battery. So what does that question reveal about the person who is asking it? Well, first, it reveals that that person is probably fairly confident around vehicles. That question also reveals that that person either owns or at least has access to a 1996 Oldsmobile. It also reveals that they're not afraid of starting a project without having quite all of the facts yet, and they're willing to get started and get their hands dirty right away. Another question that you may hear at the vehicle repair shop, perhaps if you're standing behind me, uh, is something more like, can you please fix my car? It sounds like this. <laughs> That's the kind of question that I tend to ask at the vehicle repair store. And what does that reveal about me? Well, it reveals that I'm not confident when it comes to vehicles whatsoever. It reveals that I'm not afraid to sound like an idiot, either when asking that question or when re relating it to you. It also reveals that I'm most likely about to be charged three times as much as the first guy in my story. So this is just an illustration to get us thinking about what it is that we can glean when listening carefully to the questions that people ask. We're going to be reading from Mark 12 today, and I want us to pay careful attention to the types of questions that are being asked both to Jesus and the questions that Jesus is asking. We're coming into the middle of a conflict between Jesus and the various religious leaders of the time. And so it will be very beneficial for us to spend some time looking carefully at these questions. If you're going to read along with me and you have the church Bibles, you can join on page 551. Let's just start and read this together and then dive in. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. 
So let's paraphrase this question and look at what it is that Jesus, or that is being asked of Jesus. So essentially, the Pharisees are saying, hey Jesus, you know that complex doctrine we don't actually believe in? Well, we've thought of an overly complicated scenario, and we want you to try to answer it. So what does this question reveal about the heart of the Sadducees? Well, firstly, it reveals that their intention is not to get good answers. Their intention is to trap and discredit Jesus. Verse 18 says, uh, The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So this whole premise uh, that is being asked of Jesus is based on something that those who are asking don't even believe really exists. So why are they asking it? Well, they're continuing this pattern that we've seen over the last couple of verses of questioning Jesus' authority, of trying to discredit him and get him to say something that will disprove who he claims that he is. This question also reveals that the Sadducees do not accept either the authority of Jesus or the authority of God himself or even the scriptures. Verse 24 says, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These are the priests. These are the people who are supposed to be ultimately the experts on the power of God and on the power of the scriptures. But they don't even know it. They're relying on something else. And the way that they frame their question gives us a clue into what it is that they rely on. If Jesus is saying that they're not truly relying on the scriptures and they're not truly relying on God, What is it that they're relying on? Well, we see from how they have organized this complicated scenario and have presented this question that they're confident really in their own cleverness. They've tried to to phrase something in such a way that Jesus cannot answer it correctly. There's no right answer. They're trying to use the framing and the positioning of this question just to show how clever they are and to challenge Jesus on a matter of doctrine, not based on anything in the scriptures, but really just based on their own cleverness. Verse 25 says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the book, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's giving us this picture of who God really is. He's saying who God says that he is compared to this sort of irrelevant question about whose wife a woman will be at the resurrection. And a modern illustration of this is that people can ask questions like this today. Essentially, I recall the story from when I was in college. A person who I really respect and and is very intelligent and quite clever came to me one day, really looking mostly for an argument, but said, so if God can really do anything, is he capable of creating a rock that he's incapable of moving. And so if he's capable of anything, he should be able to create it. But if he can create anything, then he can he do something he can't do? And it's this very complicated scenario. And this person was very clever, but they're missing the point. They're not seeing what kinds of questions are valuable to ask. A much better question could be, if God can do anything, is he truly capable of calling a rebellious heart to repentance? and transforming a sinful life into looking like that of his own son? There is a question that has power, not a question that just sort of invites conflict and is trying to show off your own cleverness, but something that's truly 
meaningful. And this can be tempting even for us. I know that for myself, I find myself tempted to rely on my cleverness, even in accomplishing God's work, which should be the thing that we are most reliant on God for. But I confess that I find myself trying to just think of the right words and trying to position things correctly in ministry, just to try to get things to go just the way I want them and to argue correctly and and all of these things, relying not on the power of God or on the scriptures, but like the Sadducees here, really just relying on my own cleverness. Kids, have you ever tried to come up with an argument that you will give your parents that will make them let you do something that you really want to do, even though you know it's not the right thing to do? Have you ever, kids, done something and then afterward tried to justify what you've done by lying about it or by coming up with a clever answer when you're confronted. Adults, let's be honest, which of you have done that exact same thing very recently? I know I have. And it's actually comforting to know that God is not fooled by our cleverness. That does not make any impact on him. And in fact, in verse 27, he says, you are quite wrong. You are not understanding the point when dealing with Jesus. It's not about being clever. And so we see we cannot rely on our own cleverness for salvation. Let's jump to the next section in the text, and we'll look at another question that's being asked of Jesus immediately after. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said, that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any questions. So let's paraphrase this section as well. Essentially, the scribe is coming to Jesus and saying, wow, Jesus, you really know what you're talking about. If you can make sense of all those complicated rules that the Sadducees are always going on and about, what rule is the most important for us to follow? And so when we look at this question, let's think about what this question reveals about the scribe. Verse 28 says that when the scribe came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well. So the scribe is coming to Jesus specifically because he know he would give good answers. Unlike the Sadducees previously who were trying to trap Jesus, the scribe here is actually looking for a good answer. He's asking the question because he had heard Jesus answered well. We even see that he agrees with Jesus. Verse 32 says, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. He's agreeing with Jesus. What a, what a wonderful place to be in contrast 
to the Sadducees, the Sadducees who don't even believe the scriptures or know the power of God. Here this scribe is saying that Jesus is right. He's agreeing and understanding what it is that God values. He recognizes the things that God values. In 33, he says that doing all of these things, that there is no one besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he's, he's correctly identifying what it is that God values. It's not all of this complicated, difficult thing, and whose wife will she be, and, you know, let's figure out this complicated system. What God values is the love of God to him, one to another, and one to another. And so we see here that this person, this scribe, is coming from a much, much better place than our previous question. These questions reveal that his heart is genuine. And when Jesus responds, he reveals a lot as well. Verse 29 through 30, Jesus answers, he gives him a direct answer. Unlike in the first story where Jesus sort of confronts them and says that they're wrong and gives them, gives them biblical truth, but doesn't in any way advocate them, doesn't say that they're doing anything right, because they're not. Here we have a man who is doing some things right, and Jesus gives a straight answer. He tells him right off, the greatest commandment is, and he answers the question that was framed to him because it was coming from a sincere heart. And so we see that Jesus is not afraid of honest questions. He's not afraid to be questioned and to give those answers truthfully and honestly. And this is coming when, when Jesus is answering questions that are being asked out of a true heart. Again, a modern illustration that I have experienced is when people come and ask truly, how can God allow suffering? And that is not an easy question. That is a difficult, difficult question. But if asked truthfully, God has answers. God does answer why there's suffering in the world. He does give us truth and straightforward that we can understand. But it has to come from a point of sincerity, not of trying to trap or discredit Jesus. We also see in verse 34, when Jesus responds, that he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, seeing the wisdom that the scribe has asked this question. And this is a pivotal verse, because this tells us something, again, that the scribe is asking good questions. He is close to the kingdom of God. But being not far means also that he's not quite there yet. He's still missing something. Uh, and we've already seen that he agrees with Jesus, and he even understands some of the things that God wants, but he's missing something critical that's that last step between being near the kingdom and being in the kingdom. And we'll get a preview of this here as we continue to read and see how Jesus responds next, what it is that this scribe is missing. But a lot of people stop there. A lot of people stop with either agreeing that Jesus has good teaching, or even saying these are things that are good, but even when they're close to the kingdom, they're not quite there. And I guess I'll, I'll give you a spoiler, but what it is that he, the scribe is missing is who Jesus is, is who is the Christ himself, as we'll see shortly. But there are many people who get close, but not quite there. Another illustration today is the fact that many people believe that the Bible teaches good things. It teaches us how to live well with one another. It helps society to survive. 
We need these kind of morals to get along, but they miss that critical point of who is Jesus, and they don't take that last step. And I would challenge you that if you leave here today and you haven't made Christ the Lord of your life, then you're missing that last step. No matter how close you are, you have to take that last step. I was convicted by this verse too in that I often am trying to do the right thing. I find myself trying to agree with God or follow the important commandments without actually having that deep heart level change, that motivation from the heart that is the reason that we do all of those things. Whether it's how I raise my son or how I interact with work, what is the right thing to do can often consume a lot of my attention. I spent time preparing this sermon, but was that just so that I could give you a good sermon and look good, or was that so that I could have the opportunity to share God's Word with you? And I had to search my heart as I was preparing this for just that thing. Even when we're giving to the poor or things that are good things, it's wise for us to check our hearts and be sure that we are doing them out of a motivation of love. Kids, do you pray? Do you spend time praying in addition to just memorizing Bible stories or learning to do things with your mind. Those are all good things, but you also have to use your heart. You have to learn to love God, not just know about God. And we see from this section here how the questions are revealing not only can we not rely on our cleverness, but we also cannot rely only on godly teaching. Even if it's good godly teaching, we have something more that we need to rely on. So let's move on to the next section and see what it is specifically that we can rely on. And Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So let's look at this question that Jesus is asking now. We've covered the question of the Sadducees and the question of the honest scribe, and now we get to hear a question from Jesus. And this is, this is so cool. It's so telling to look and see what this question reveals about Jesus. So Jesus is saying essentially that, you know the Christ, the scribes say that he is the son of David, but David himself calls him Lord. So what's going on here? Who really is the Christ? If he's not the son... Who is he? What does this question reveal about Jesus? Well, it reveals that the identity of the Christ is crucial and is relevant to these conversations. We've had all of these discussions, starting with the Pharisees and then the Herodians and the Sadducees and now an honest scribe. And finally, Jesus himself is starting to ask these questions. And the question that he feels that it is important to ask about is who is the Christ? What is the relationship of Christ to God and of Christ to man? Verse 35 says that David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So 
this is asking not just about who is God, but what is God like? Not just who does the law say that the Lord is, but what is the relationship of the Lord to us and to David in particular? It shows that the authority of God is superseding even that of the authority of David, that David calls him Lord. Remember from last week when Bill was talking that the the center of this conflict is really about authority. Who has the authority? Where do your authority come from, Jesus? What is it that you are saying about yourself? And can you support the things that you are saying with your authority? And here Jesus reveals through this question where his authority is coming from. It's coming from God the Father, and that supersedes all of the other authorities that have come against him. That's why he can be so confident. He can be confident when faced with the Pharisees who have the authority of law. He can be confident when faced by the Herodians who have all of the authority of the Roman government. He can be confident when faced by the Sadducees who have the authority of the temple. None of those authorities can even touch Jesus' authority because ultimately all of those authorities are given by God and he himself is God and supersedes all other authorities. And so there's no fear and there's no temerity here with Jesus because he understands where his authority is coming from. And then in 38 through 39, Jesus paints a picture. He gives us an idea of sort of what the modern earthly authorities, even those who claim to be an authority of God, what they look like. And it's not a pretty picture. And so he's drawing our attention to the fact that godly authority looks different from earthly authority. Verse 38 through 39, the scribes who walk around and like greetings and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor. He's intentionally drawing a contrast between what he looks like and what these people look like. Essentially, you can sort of, under his breath, asking, you know, what does godly authority look like? <clears throat> what, what, does, what does the Christ look like? Wink, wink, cough, cough. You know, does it look like all of these other people? No. Who do you think it looks like? Are you, are you picking up yet? It's me. It's Jesus. Who is the Christ? It is Jesus. And that is the last crucial step that the previous story of the honest scribe, what he was missing, was that that final step of Jesus is the Christ. And this is good. We see in verse 37 that the crowd heard him gladly. What a good thing is it that the authority of Jesus does not look like earthly authority. We don't have to fear that our the houses of widows will be devoured by God. We don't have to fear that God will be an authority that looks like those that we've experienced. He is separate, and that is very, very good. And so we can hear that gladly. And so we can conclude that section here with the, the phrase and understanding that we cannot rely on our own cleverness, as we saw at the beginning. We cannot even rely on good godly teaching for salvation, but we can absolutely rely on Christ, King Jesus, who is enough. And having concluded that, we get a nice little picture in this last section of what it looks like to truly rely on Jesus. So let's read this next section and discuss that. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, 
And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And this is a picture that we see of a woman who is truly dependent on God. Not in some abstract way, but she is literally putting the last money that she has to live on into the hands of God. And this is a picture of a true kingdom citizen. She's a widow. She's poor. She doesn't have the stature that many of these others have. Verse 44 talks about the abundance that the other people are giving from. And verse 41 talks about the many rich people that have come in who are great in the temple. And here she is, who is humble and comes in humility, much like Jesus himself, a much better picture of the kingdom of God than the kingdom of man. And she's willing to give in a very practical way her very life into the hands of God. And we can look at this picture and we can recognize the freedom that there is in being dependent on God, not relying on cleverness or on or on even the, our understanding of godly teaching, but truly relying in a practical way on God. Uh, we can be fearless in this knowledge. So there are many things that we can do fearlessly. Uh, we can pray fearlessly for the salvation of our families because our life is safe in God's hands. We can confess our sin and we can cut it from our life because our life is safe in God's hands. I was so touched by Stephen's story of this man who confessed his sin and put his full future life on this earth into the hands of God. That is a beautiful, beautiful picture, and it is safe in God's hands. We can give generously from our finances because our life is safe in God's hands. We can even put our spouse's needs ahead of our own needs because our life is safe in God's hands. We can lay down our lives like Jesus did for the church in serving one another and in serving our spouse and our children. We can even witness to our neighbors because our life is safe in God's hands. We can be free to face painful rejection or even ridicule because our life is safe in God's hands. And this widow is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of what it looks like to be free in our dependence on God and not to rely on any of these things that we've said before. You know, and to conclude this with our main point, we can see that we cannot rely on our cleverness. We cannot even rely on godly teaching for salvation, but only the Christ, King Jesus, is enough, and depending fully on him will set us free. Well, let's pray and have the worship team come on back up. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. God, you are so good to us. And we confess, Lord, that many times we're afraid or distracted and tempted to rely on other things to accomplish your will or for even our salvation, Lord. But we pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to us today and this week. Help us to make that last step of recognizing who is the Christ. God, let us invite you as Lord over all of us, over our lives, and over everything that we 
do this week and for the rest of our lives, God. Thank you, Father, for your word and for these brothers and sisters who are here. In your name, God, we pray.